Hi, welcome to episode 51 of Talk About the Passion. I'm your host, Christian Campagna, and this is going to be a different format than normal, which is hopefully going to be the starting off point of a bigger project I have in mind I'll get to in a minute. But first off, I was completely crushed tonight to learn that Reed Mullen, the drummer of Corrosion of Conformity, has passed away. Reed's band was a hugely influential band for me as a teenager, particularly their record Animosity, which fused metal and hardcore even more than what was hinted on their their first record, Eye for an Eye. Reed was an amazing drummer and fit that band perfect, landing somewhere between like Bill Ward, Robo, and Neil Peart. I was lucky enough to interview Reed for my fanzine when I was 15 years old. Uh, COC were in town playing a church in Cambridge, Massachusetts, for the Animosity Tour. Reed, along with Brian Walsby, the artist, uh, answered most of the questions, and they were the nicest people I had met in the scene up to that point. In subsequent years, when COC were in Boston, Reed would always remember my name and say hello. A good guy with a heart of gold, a monster on the drums, and now another one of my musical heroes is gone. Life isn't fair. To say Corrosion of Conformity had a huge impact on me and other people into similar music I'm into would be an understatement. I could sit here and list off a dozen bands and do that. Without COC, you'd have no blank. But, you know, what good's that going to do? Instead, after I record this, it will probably be close to 1 a.m. I live in this, you know, small little cabin, kind of in the woods with no real neighbors. I'm going to put on animosity as loud as possible and play that and listen to that whole record from start to finish. And uh, and it'll be just like getting punched in the face repeatedly as, you know, the first time I heard that record. Uh, you should do the same, and, you know, with whatever COC record is your favorite, that's that's my favorite. The music is there. The stories about Reed will start pouring out over the next few weeks, I'm sure. So we will celebrate his music and memory with words and music. Thanks, Reed. Now, I came up with a loose idea recently about this podcast and how I've been documenting a good amount of backstories on people from all over the place. I never wanted this podcast to be just about one genre of music or just musicians or people just from Boston. However, I've started collecting the stories of people from the Boston hardcore world, specifically guests talking about that era of hardcore music, say, you know, pretty much just the 80s. Moving forward, I'm going to continue having guests, you know, from all types of genres of music and backgrounds, but I'm going to collect and old and new information to put together into what will hopefully turn into something bigger. I have this idea in my head of the elements I want to talk about, the music, venues, record stores or where people got music, you know, mail order and that kind of thing, media like DJs and fanzines, and then finally people in the scene. You know, just those people everyone knows, that kind of thing. I'm going to contact more folks to either talk about this stuff on the podcast or off the podcast, including you. Were you there? Or do you know uh, you know a lot about that era of the scene here? If so, let's talk. This is a serious project, and the more people involved, the better. Send me a message if you'd like to know how to get more involved in this and what I'm thinking. With that said, I have no guest this week. I'm doing an over-the-phone episode this week, which I should have up next Tuesday, and I'm pretty excited about that one. In the meantime, I wanted to talk a little bit about my experiences in Boston hardcore early on. 
I've probably told these exact stories on other episodes before, and the idea of me just talking to myself for however long I talk about, this is a challenge, so I am probably just going to hit record and then start talking. I mean, I'll be reading from a thing I wrote, but anyway, let's get into this. Thanks for listening. Okay, I'm here with uh, nobody today, uh, this evening, and uh, yeah, imagine the sound of, uh, you know, waves crashing and and seagulls and that kind of thing, and just picture that. Don't actually do that. Uh, So in the summer of 1982, I was living in this town called Nahant, Mass., which is a tiny little peninsula uh, north of Boston. We were about to move off the peninsula to the suburb of Linmass, Swampscott. In the summers, we would often spend time at my great-aunt Grace Burrill's house. Uh, her house was right next door to my other cousin, uh, the Maletti family, and their yards connected, so in the summer they would have these huge cookouts where both houses would uh, you know, be grilling and lighting off fireworks and that kind of thing. Um especially around July when her, uh, Grace Burrell's son, Frank Enzo Burrell, would light off fireworks with the blessings of the fire department. Growing up around music in the family, I was already a rock and roll kid, but I was at that age where I could have gone any direction. I was leaning towards stuff like Cheap Trick, The Clash, Joe Jackson, The Police, Devo, but I also still had a foot planted in hard rock like Kiss, Ozzy, Led Zeppelin, the Black Sabbath and that kind of thing. At one of these summer cookouts, my aunt, this is actually my great aunt, mentioned to me that I had a cousin named Alan I never met that played in this band called SSD Control. She had a copy of the record, and I took it into her house and played it. I thought it was the worst thing I'd ever heard in my life. Well, not really, but I, I, I wasn't that into it. Being around a father working for a major label, I had no concept of DIY. The album cover, which to me just looked like Sha Na Na or like, you know, extras from the movie The Wanderers rushing the State House in Massachusetts just seemed silly. And the fact that there were so many songs in the album was weird to me as well. I kind of forgot about the band and didn't even take the copy of the album she offered me to keep. It's okay, I owned a copy years later. A few months later in junior high school, now I'm living in Swampscott, We would occasionally have this substitute teacher, Mrs. Quint. She was the sweetest woman, much better than the regular teachers we we would have. She just seemed just more cool and laid back and funny. She would often bring in these, you know, mimeographed looking, uh, stapled together things called fanzines that her son wrote called Suburban Punk for us to look at. Most of the kids were pretty dismissive of them, but I remember thumbing through them slightly interested in this whole world and connecting the dots back to that record, my great-aunt let me hear. I was familiar with stuff like The Clash and Sex Pistols, and wasn't completely ignorant of punk rock music, I just had no idea what hardcore music was. Fast forward to around a year later. I had since taken the hard rock and metal route, was hanging out with some new friends, you know, denim jackets, long hair, skateboards, acne, girls with, you know, uh, corduroy pants and 
fur the jacket, you know, those corduroy jackets with the fur collars. Uh, oh, yeah, and smoking weed. At one point, we needed weed, as, as often you did when you were 12 years old in the suburbs. And uh, one of my friends, well, I guess I was 13 at this point, uh, had a connection, this punk rock guy, Peter. He could sell us a couple of joints for the going rate back then, a dollar each. I was to meet him near the Swampscott Mall, and he would see, sell me a couple joints. My friend described him as this weird punk rocker. I immediately spotted him approaching me uh, as I was you know, standing there with my skateboard. Peter and I became good friends. Uh, he played me a number of hardcore records, namely the compilations uh, Not So Quiet on the Western Front, put out by Fanzine Maximum Rock and Roll, and the Flex Your Head compilation, put out by Discord. We would spend days in Peter's basement bedroom in Swampscott listening to Minor Threat, MDC, uh, Misfits, Earth AD album, SSD, Crass, Rudimentary Peni, and just about anything else that fell under the hardcore or punk rock umbrella. Punk rock was was new to me. It was weird and scary and hard to understand. It seemed to have a lot to do with fashion. By the time I got to, you know, by the time it got to me in, you know, 1983, the fashion part of it was mostly gone. The bands just, you know, kind of looked like me. By the time, uh, you know, the music made its way to, you know, from 1980 to 1982, say, the music was sort of distilled down to a raw, faster, you know, more guitar-driven music called hardcore. The the early, you know, punk bands were, you know, like the Ramones and, and Sex Pistols were, you know, influenced by the Stooges and the Beach Boys and a lot of the hardcore bands I was listening to were then influenced by bands like the Damned and the Buzzcocks. It's, you know, pretty ironic that we would hang out in Peter's basement and get high and listen to these records, especially Minor Threat and SSD Controls Get It Away. Um, but it made sense at the time. You know, the wall of sound those bands created, especially, was intense and was perfect for that, even if we weren't getting the message yet, yet you know. Alongside these records, Rudimentary Peni's record Death Church and the two crass records Christ the Album and The Feeding of the 5,000. These records were weird and smart and arty and it had this different vibe than the straight-up blasts of speed minor threat and bands like that gave us. So, you know, I was kind of getting an, an education in uh, all types of style of, you know, hardcore and punk rock. When it came to buy some records... I had a store in Swampscott called Popcorn Records. I hadn't ventured into the city yet, but this place, you know, had a, a few good things. The first ones I bought over a couple of months were Black Flags, Six Pack, and TV Party 45s, and two 12-inch singles by Dead Kennedys, Halloween, and Bleed For Me. Eventually, I would make my way to Boston with a, a list Peter gave me of records to buy. DYS Brotherhood, my own copy of uh, SSD Get It Away, he had his own, and I, I still have the, the, the one I bought that day. The first uh, Suicidal Tendencies record, F.U.'s Kill for Christ, and then arguably the best of the lot, Jerry's Kids, Is This My World? Okay, actually, let's, let's argue about that. Okay, I win all. You know, all of those are classic records, but the Jerry's Kids record is life-changing. A sonic barrage, and it's just this cacophonous wall of noise, but with catchy songs. And, and by catchy, I don't mean poppy. But tell me lost or, you know, crucify me don't get easily lodged in your head when you hear them. And you'll you'll be lying. 
you know, there are hooks and pop songs, and then there are hooks and this kind of music, and this record is filled with them. The other thing about all of these records was the photos on the back of the bands playing live. My friends and I would pose like SSD and DYS on the back of these records. Remember, I was, I was 13 years old discovering this stuff, so that was a perfectly acceptable behavior. But hey, if you want to, you know, if you want me to act out every member of SSD Control and the crowd from the pictures in the back of Get It Away, now as a 50-year-old man, I'll, I'll do it. Just, just ask me. Peter told me there was a show coming up at a club called The Channel. The bands were Channel 3 and Kraut. I had never heard of either of these bands. And his friend uh, Al Quint would drive us in along with Al's friend and suburban punk photographer Paul. I think his last name was Johnson. Al was friendly and had an encyclopedic knowledge of punk rock music. He had his nose broken that day in the pit, which, you know, for me was like, ooh. I, I didn't go in the pit that day. And this was the beginning of a friendship that is still here, you know, 32 years later. This was also the day I realized his mother was the substitute teacher I had had, you know, a year or so before. The idea of a club show, too, was completely foreign to me. I had gone to many rock concerts and arenas and big theaters. But, you know, this didn't register me as something a young teenager was able to do until I got into this music. When I first walked into the channel, it was a completely new experience, and I immediately fell in love with it. Outside in the parking lot, you know, waiting around for the doors to open, numerous people would walk up and Al or Peter would introduce me. This is where I met Mike Gitter, who also did a fanzine called Triple X Fanzine, and a tall fellow named Jed, who also did a fanzine called Smash, if I recall. So the idea that you would go see live music and see a number of people you know there, people you were friends with, was really attractive to me. And that was, you know, always one of my favorite things to do at shows and, and still is to this day is, uh, you know, running into the people and just hanging out and talking. You know, and, and, you know, it's now 35 years later. And, you know, I see some of the same people I saw then now. And uh, it's the same as, as it was then. So nothing's changed except our, you know, hair color. And we ache more, probably. Um, you know, I, I certainly felt as one of the audience at, you know, Rush and Ozzy Osbourne concerts. But, but you know, what are the chances you're going to run into anyone you know at one of those in a dark and smoky arena in 1982 but this was different everyone was pretty friendly and aside from a few people decked out in leather and spikes most of the crowd just looked like normal kids i don't remember anything about that show um i got into those bands later on uh kraut especially i, I like them uh quite a bit uh so but my next show was at a club called storyville in kenmore square um all of my friends were waiting there uh, I have a Charlie Parker live set from that same club, and from what I know, this was a short-lived venue for punk and hardcore music. Uh, but the, the show I saw was the Proletariat, Sorry, and Dub 7. Dub 7 were a ska reggae type band. I don't remember much of them. Uh, Sorry left a lasting impression on me, though. I would see them numerous times and still play their records today. And of, and of course, the Proletariat who blew my face off. They were, you know, blistering and pissed off and loud, and the singer sounded British. There was no pictures of them on their record, so I had no idea what they would look like. Uh, but what a band. And they're playing again and, you know, still bring it. Uh, I'm going to bug their singer Richard Brown to me on the podcast I did 
before we were you know weren't able to make it happen but uh, hopefully that will happen at some point he's got some great stories and uh, he's a he's a really cool guy and without getting too political a perfect time for that band to exist again uh also that would be the first show where i would go into the pit which whatever that doesn't really matter over the next few months i immersed myself in this music I would listen to the Salem Mass radio station, WMWM, where I was a DJ years later, uh, to this guy, Chris Corkum, another North Shore guy who played punk and hardcore music. At one point, my aunt arranged for my cousin, Al, to call me and introduce himself and talk about music or whatever. SSD had just released Get It Away at at, at the time, and this was at the time when they would pretty much just move forward and only play newer music from their next album, Howie Rock, uh, you know, which was generally panned by everyone for being a sellout or whatever. It was far from hardcore, but I liked it anyway, and, it, and it's aged pretty well, I think, especially when you listen to it as the record after Get It Away. It, it makes sense, I think. Um, over the next couple of years, I would often call Al, and we talk, and I, I can't even imagine what we talked about, but the fact that he was nice enough uh, to give his young cousin some phone time was great. Uh, and if you know Al, he's, you know, kind of intimidating looking guy and had a tough reputation back then, but he's a pretty soft-spoken guy. And, uh, you know, he, he did talk quite a, quite a bit about working on How We Rock and then Break It Up because it was around that time when, when we were talking. As much as I was a purist, with a lot of my bands, I always admired bands like SSD that wanted to progress and do something different. When all of the Boston bands went metal, they still remained vital bands, the FUs probably being the best example. After having some of the best songs on This Is Boston Not LA compilation, followed by two amazingly blistering hardcore albums, Kill For Christ and My America, their third album, Do We Really Want to Hurt You, was pure rock and roll. Hell, their previous album closed with a pretty straightforward cover of Grand Funk Railroad's uh, We're an American Band. In my opinion, some of the band's best work was on this album, Warlords, Killer, Shitheads, Walking Tall, and, of, you know, of course, Young, Fast, and Radiance. DYS was the other band that did really well progressing into this more rock-based style. In, re- in retrospect, in hearing the songs from their second self-titled album at, yes, at uh, when I saw them play the Gallery East show, you know, I think that was about 10 years ago at this point, uh, those songs were just as heavy as hardcore based as their first album brotherhood the riffs were you know like no pain no gain and uh late night those are you know dys songs when listening to all of these bands that went metal though none of them really sound what you would call metal in my opinion gangrene and ssd also had their own brand of rock that basically was just an extension of what they were doing on the material before they transitioned anyway the one band I never thought made that transition was Jerry's Kids, who seemed to just get faster and faster on their second full-length Kill, 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 which I think is, is also an amazing album. It's not as good as the first one, but uh, it's a great album, and, and you know all those songs were, were always fun live, especially like Satan's Toy. Um, I still listen to a good amount of hardcore from that era, and although I came in a tiny bit late missing you know, the Dead Kennedys, Misfits, and Minor Threat, I got to see pretty much every great band from that scene, even if it was, even if it was like a, a later era. You know, I saw SSD, but only performing stuff from How We Rock and their final album, Break It Up. 
It was a, a lull around Boston and around the country, and then two things happened, well, at least for me. The first one was, you know, metal started creeping into the scene with either bands adopting a metal sound and look, you know, find a picture of Bubba Dupree from that Void show at the uh, the YWCA in, in Cambridge, I think in 85 or 86, and he's got the uh, sleeveless Motley Crue shirt and the headband. Uh, it's pretty awesome. Or, you know, when, you know, Agnostic Front's second album had all that double bass on it and, you know, that album rules. And then uh, Corrosion of Conformity's Animosity was a huge record. And it, you know, made dudes like me feel okay to still carry, you know, the metalhead flag a little bit. The second thing that happened was Slapshot formed. For me, this was a big deal. I'd finally get to see some of these people I had only heard about. I heard all types of stories about Choke the Singer, how he would hit people in the head with the mic stand and he was crazy. And, you know, none of this turned out to be true, but it added to the myth. Um, when that band came around, Dag Nasty was also coming out and, uh, Embrace. So some of these people that were in the, uh, you know, the music scene that I listened to growing up, well, you know, if, if not growing up, but a few years previous now had these new projects and, uh, you know, I'd get to see them live, you know, I didn't, Embrace never ended up making it up here. Um. But, you know, Slapshot and Dag Nasty with uh, Dave Smalley, the, the, the first couple shows were amazing. And, uh, yeah, so that's that's kind of where I'm going to stop. And then the, the next episode I'm going to go from uh, there and we'll talk about, uh, you know, metal and, and that creeping into the scene. And then uh, Dag Nasty and some of those uh, bands that started coming through Boston. Because, you know, one of the uh, biggest hardcore albums of all time that was you know from that sort of, i guess they would call it like the third wave or second wave youth of today break down the walls that album has taken the cover photos taken at the uh the rat which was one of the most amazing shows i i, I saw you know definitely a top three hardcore show and uh but yeah you know we'll talk about you know i want to kind of keep this thing specifically boston themed but a lot of that has to do with, you know, out-of-town bands playing here, especially like that show. That's, that's a pretty legendary show. And, uh, yeah. Anyway, thank you for listening to this. And uh, I'm going to do another one of these soon. And, uh, again, if you would like to get involved in this uh, new project, the Boston Hardcore Project here, we'll just call it the Nameless, uh, Shapeless Boston Hardcore Project. Uh, and you want to answer some questions and talk, uh, let's do that. Hit me up and uh, we'll get something together. Thanks. <laughs>